Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. This week we're going to do a Theology Explainer episode on covenants. Now, covenants are probably not a topic we think about very often, at least not in the biblical context. And so, in the biblical context, we may not be super clear on what they are. Now, there's probably a few ways to explain covenants from a biblical perspective, but I think the best way to answer it will require us to learn something about the Bible and how it's put together. To do that, we're going to have to do what is called biblical theology. That word might not mean exactly what you think it does. Theology is the study of God. It is a collection of things we believe in our faith. Now, all theology from the Christian perspective should be biblical, meaning it should come from the Bible. But often when we use the word theology, we are referencing something that's called systematic theology. That takes a specific topic and helps us explain what the Bible teaches by systematically accumulating all the Bible has to say about that topic. For the most part, that's what our Theology Explainer episodes are. That's the angle they're taking. It's where we get a lot of our fun theology words like ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, or eschatology, the doctrine of last things, or soteriology the doctrine of salvation, and so on and so forth. There's lots of fun words. But biblical theology means something a little bit different. I mean, it does come from the Bible, but it has a little bit different of a goal that it's seeking to accomplish. It seeks to take the whole Bible and unpack the grand story that God has been writing all along. Biblical theology seeks to unify the Bible. It shows how it is all connected. And by the way, I really love this stuff because the more we step back and the more we see the Bible as a whole, the more we see the fingerprints of God all over it. I mean, there are nearly 64,000 cross-references in the Bible. That means where one verse references another verse in Scripture. And when you consider that there's about 40 different men who put pen to paper, Over three continents, 1,500 years, lots of languages, lots of backgrounds, lots of professions, it truly shows the finger of God working through the generations. The fact that there is a singular story that is armed with nearly 64,000 cross-references truly shows that it was God working and developing and guiding this story all along. Let's really get into our conversation on covenants with a simple question. How is the Bible divided? Now, I promise you, this is not a trick question. If you look at your Bible, you'll see two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But have you ever thought to yourself, what does Old Testament and New Testament actually mean? Well, Testament is an old word that's pretty much a synonym of covenant. And a covenant is a promise. It is a commitment. In the Bible, God makes lots of covenants with his people. But there are four big ones in the Old Testament that really move the story of the Bible along. And furthermore, they point to a greater covenant that God was going to work in the future. It shows how God has worked through the generations to bring about a divine rescue mission. Now, the four main covenants in the Old Testament will not surprise anyone familiar with the Bible. If I were to ask you who are the four most important men of the Old Testament— you might answer Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. I would understand if you said Adam, but he's not one of the four when it comes to covenants. 
Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go through each of these four covenants, explaining what they were, their purpose, and hopefully when we get to the end, we're going to see how they were pointing to something else all along. Okay? So the first of our major covenants is with Noah. In the days of Noah, the sin of man had multiplied to incredibly evil levels. It was almost impressive how evil folks were. Genesis 6 tells us that this grieved the heart of God. So, Genesis 6 verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But what we also see in the judgment and the wrath that is about to unfold is that there's a man named Noah who found favor in God's eyes. So God was going to show grace upon Noah and Noah's family and spare them from this outpouring of wrath and judgment. After Noah had finished the ark that God instructed him to build, God brought down this wrath, and it was in the form of a cataclysmic flood. It destroyed all life outside the ark. But eventually, the flood waters receded. It was at that time that God made his covenant with Noah. Genesis chapter 9, verse 11 says, quote, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. End quote. So God is promising to never again wipe out the earth with a flood. But remember, Why did he wipe out the earth with a flood? Why did he end all human life outside of those who were in the ark? Well, it was the wickedness, the sinfulness of mankind. And here's the thing. God knows everything. There is not one thing that has ever happened ever that has caught God off guard. He knows, he knew then and he knows now, that sin is going to get crazy again. He knows the sinfulness of mankind will continue, and yet... He still promises that he's not going to wipe out everybody with the flood. See, God is promising grace. And in his promise, we can see a road sign pointing to a future way in which the Lord God plans to deal with the sinfulness of man. Now, our second covenant is with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 say this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. End quote. And then in Genesis 22 verse 18 we see the words, quote, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. End quote. So God is going to turn Abraham's family into a mighty nation, and somehow through this offspring he will bless all the nations of the world. Abraham commits to obey God, but through this we really see an interesting grace. All Abraham does is believe, and it is continually said that Abraham's belief is credited to him as righteousness. Now, if you go through all the story of Abraham, you're going to see this is a man who makes mistakes like everyone else does. But yet his belief credits him righteousness before God. 
Genesis chapter 15 gives us some pretty incredible foreshadowing as it describes an interesting ritual. See, God told Abraham to bring these animals and to cut them in half, and they laid them aside, right? This was going to be an ancient covenant-making ritual. The idea of this ritual is that both parties would walk between the animals that had been cut in half. I know that's gross, but this is what they did. It's to say, basically, whoever breaks the covenant that we are making today is going to end up like these animals. So, in other words, you do not want to break the covenant, or you could get cut in half, or some other bad, negative, no good thing. But what's interesting is that God makes Abram, soon to be Abraham, take a nap. Now, if Abraham is taking a nap, that means he's unable to walk between these animals, which means he's really unable to sign the covenant from his perspective. So what we see is only a smoking fire pot passes through. Now, You may know that smoke and fire are symbols of the presence of God. So what we see is foreshadowing that God would one day take on the penalty of the covenant he made being broken. Even though God doesn't break his covenants, it would have to be Abraham's side or mankind's side of the covenant that is broken. In this covenant, God promises Abraham so much. Abraham simply believes God and takes him at his word, and it is credited to him as righteousness. Let's move on to our third covenant, and that is with Moses. You know, Moses is the guy who God sent to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, Pharaoh, let my people go. That guy. And God worked the plagues through Moses, and basically Egypt was brought to its knees. Moses is the guy who God gives his law to. The law would be the things that would keep God's people morally upright. It would also be the thing that would keep God's people distinct from all other nations. Then in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, we see this, quote, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is telling his people to obey his law. And if they do, God's blessing will be on them and they will represent him in a very special way. They will be blessed like no one has ever been blessed before. They're going to be set apart. But for everyone who's read the Bible, they know that Israel never kept up this covenant. Eventually, if you read through the whole law, you're going to see 613 laws, 613 that Israel could not keep. They were constantly rebelling against their God. This was a covenant God's people would be unable, really unwilling to keep. The last covenant fast forwards is a few hundred years, and that's the covenant with David. We know King David as the man after God's own heart, the shepherd boy whose faith in God allowed him to take on the giant Goliath when everyone else was too afraid, a king who God truly delighted in, and who truly delighted in God. God made a covenant with David that would go far beyond David's life. We see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11-14. through 14. Quote, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. End quote. So what we see here is that God promises to spread his kingdom over all the nations, and that one day a descendant of David would sit on his throne and rule literally forever. Now this begs the question, who could live forever to rule forever? I mean, we know that David's son Solomon certainly couldn't do that. I mean, Solomon was an impressive king. He accomplished a lot. He built the temple, but he died. And when his throne passed to his son Rehoboam, the kingdom was split in two. The Lord God was promising a future ruler, a future king. You see, in Bible prophecies, there's so often the already and the not yet. There's the things that's about to happen imminently. But then so often there is a line that can be drawn from that prophecy that will be fulfilled in some way imminently to something that happens in the future. That's the not yet. There's so many double meanings to those things. And so many of those things fall under the category of messianic prophecies like this one. Let's quickly recap where we're at. God's covenant with Noah was to not destroy the whole earth with the flood again, even though mankind was going to continue to sin. God's covenant with Abraham was to turn him into a mighty nation and for his offspring to bless the whole earth. Abraham believed it was counted to him as righteousness. God's covenant with Moses was to bless them if they obeyed the law. And his covenant with David was to bring about a new and future king who would rule on his throne forever. You see, all these covenants show God pursuing, God loving, God establishing his people. But none of these covenants were his ultimate goal. They were pointing to something else in the future. So it's only appropriate that the prophets started talking about this future work. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 and 33 read as follows, quote, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then Ezekiel puts it like this in Ezekiel 36, 25-27. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So what we see from the prophets is that in this new covenant, God's law would be written on the people's hearts, and they would get a new heart because of God's Spirit. God's people were never able to keep the covenants they made with God. They always sinned. They always rebelled against Him. They were always choosing what was wrong. So God was going to somehow make it possible for His people to keep His covenant with Him. He was going to make His people new. But how could that be possible? 
We still have the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic covenants that God made. One thing we know about God is that He is faithful. He will always keep His word. He will always keep His promises. And these covenants were no different. So how could He be rewriting the covenant when all of these other covenants are still on the books? Well, I'm glad you asked. It was a very smart question. You should be proud of yourself. When Jesus came onto the scene, he started saying stuff like Matthew 5, verse 17, quote, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, end quote. Do you know what fulfill means? The Greek word here is plerao. It means to complete, or really a more literal definition is to Fill to the top so that nothing shall be left wanting. The idea is that it has been completely carried out. It has been completely accomplished. Every box was checked. Every I dotted. Every T crossed. Jesus didn't delete the old covenants or the law. He completed them. He accomplished them. He was the answer to the promises that God had made in the past. His life fulfilled the promises of God. Listen close to this. Jesus fulfilled the covenant of Noah because God's judgment was going to be poured out on Jesus instead of us. God's just nature remains the same. Wrongs have to be answered for, but where it was carried out in the form of a flood in Noah's day, Jesus was going to take on every drop from the cup of wrath while he was on the cross. Jesus fulfilled the covenant of Abraham because he is the offspring that would be the blessing to every nation. Paul told us in Galatians chapter 3 that the offspring referenced in the Abrahamic covenant was singular. So that means it wasn't a whole bunch of people, it wasn't a whole nation of Israel. They were not the answer. But someone coming from Israel, the one Jesus Christ, was going to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus fulfilled the covenant to Moses because he was actually able to keep the law to perfection. And he became the sinless sacrifice for the sins of many. Where everyone else chose what was wrong over what was right, Jesus always chose the right thing. He was truly sinless and truly accomplishing the law. Hebrews 10 dives into how the singular sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was far greater than the continual sacrifices of the priest. For our purposes, I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Quote, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. End quote. What we are seeing here is that the cross of Christ fulfilled the Mosaic covenant and accomplished far more than the law ever could. Now, it is worth noting, Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices, all the rituals, the priesthood, and more, but we are still called to keep the moral aspects of the law. For example, lying, still a sin. Killing, still a sin. Adultery, still a sin. You can go on and on this list. But the things that are pretty obvious, is this a moral code? Because the moral code is what God has decreed is the right thing for us to do. And breaking that is still 
But a major difference is that we are not relying on keeping the law in order to be saved, but rather since Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law for us and has saved us by his death and resurrection, we now in grateful obedience say, all right, God has said this is right. God has said this is wrong. So I'm going to choose what he has said is right because I love him and he loves me. Jesus fulfilled the covenant to David because he is the king whose kingdom shall never pass away. Where other kings come and go, Jesus will always remain. Consider the words in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 11, quote, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. End quote. Now with all the old covenants fulfilled in Jesus, think of the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, quote, And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. End quote. Jesus is the new covenant. He is the new promise and new commitment of God. He fulfilled all the old ones. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 says, quote, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. End quote. It is obsolete because Jesus completed it. Romans 11 tells us that through Jesus we are all brought into this covenant. Instead of a single nation, it is a kingdom, and it is spreading to all nations, all tribes, all tongues. By the blood of Jesus, sins are paid for, and entrance into the kingdom is purchased. The old covenants focus on a specific group of people, the Israelites, in the line of Abraham, and it focused on specific places like the tent or the temple. The new covenant that God made is focused on Jesus. He not only saved us from our sins, but He also gave us His righteousness. We call that imputed righteousness. And I think the simplest way to explain it is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Quote, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. End quote. What that's saying is that Jesus took our sin and he gave us his righteousness, the greatest exchange. Through that exchange, we may get the gift of the Holy Spirit and become the temple of God ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, quote, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? End quote. We are made new like Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, quote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. End quote. Through Jesus, God completed every covenant. Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, all their covenants are complete. So through Jesus, God was bringing about a new covenant. This new covenant gives us such a beautiful truth. I'll close with Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. Quote, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.